was arguably one of the greatest men of faith in all the Old Testament, had his moments of spiritual victory, but he also had moments of spiritual defeat. I appreciate the fact that the Bible does not gloss over the spiritual failure of God's church. It presents them to us right there in black and white. There was only one who didn't fail, and that was the servant of the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Apart from him, we all fail from time to time. I don't say that to discourage us. And it's also not meant to be a license to sin or a license to fail. It is meant to be a true representation of the human condition. Outside of Christ, no one is perfect. Outside of Christ, everybody fails from time to time. This should inspire, I think, at least two applications as we begin our lesson tonight. We should understand as believers that when we fail, it's not over. Believers can and do recover from even the most egregious sin. There may be a price to pay. Often there's a price to pay. Sin has consequences, to be sure. But it's not over until God says it's over. Until then, our responsibility is to persevere. It's to confess the sin. It's to repent of the sin and reset our sights on the goal that's ahead. It does us no good to quit. This year, a young golfer, one of my favorites by the name of Rory McIlroy, had a four-shot lead going into Sunday at the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. For those who don't follow golf, the Masters is a pretty big deal, perhaps the most important tournament of the year. And four shots is a pretty good lead, especially for a 21-year-old going into the final day. In fact, it was the largest lead in the Masters going into Sunday since all the way back 1997 when Tiger Woods, John Tiger Woods, who I think was close to the same age, had a pretty big lead as well. In fact, ESPN said, this is Rory's tournament. And many golf fans myself included, were pulling for him. I was happy about it because, by all accounts, he's a really good kid. 21 years old, but by all accounts, a really good guy. Most of the crowd that morning at Augusta were pulling for Rory when he teed off. He played the front nine at par, which is not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. He still was right there at the lead. And then came number 10. He hit his tee shot so far out of bounds or off the fairway that he was fortunate to even find the ball on number 10. As a matter of fact, he hit it between two cabins. I didn't even know there were cabins that you could hit it in between. That's how far off that he hit his tee shot. And I could see as he was walking between those two cabins and trying to figure out how he was going to get the ball back on the fairway, much less onto the green to try to make par. I could see the look of exasperation on his face. Here he is leading the Masters at 21 years old. He does fine through the first nine holes of the, of, the, of the final round. And then on number 10, the first hole of what they call the back nine, he hits a terrible shot. And the camera was coming close on his face, and the commentators were saying, listen, it's just one shot. All he needs to do is play it safe, get it back out into the fairway. He'll still be in the lead or really close to it when this is all finished. He doesn't need to take any chances. But he didn't do it. 
he tried to cream it and hit it close to the green, and he got into another really, really bad spot. And then the cameras were close on him again, and I'm saying he's fixing to fall apart. Don't do it. You're still in the lead. You're, all you got to do is just finish this out. So what if you get a bogey? Bogey's one over par. So what if you get a bogey? You can still finish this out. You'll still be in great position to win this tournament. Everybody's pulling for him. In fact, most of the people that I knew that were watching it, and I was on the phone with some of my friends when this was going on, we, we just had this feeling in the pit of our stomach. Looking at him on television, you could tell that he had lost all concentration because of that one darn shot that he hit between the two cameras. Well, he didn't hit the next shot very well at all, and he triple bogeyed number 10. Now, that's a bad score. By the time he was finished with number 10, he was no longer in the lead. But still, the commentators were saying, listen, all he's got to do, slow down, take a deep breath. He's going to get it back. It's not a problem. He's still real close to the lead. But I could tell by the look on his face when the cameras took the close-up, he was in another world, and he was ready to fail. The next hole, number 11, he shot a bogey, which is not a very good score either. Next hole, double bogey. By the time he was finished, he went from first place on the 10th hole at the Masters on Sunday to tie for 15th. The poor kid. I just Everybody just felt for him. Now, this story does have just a bit of a happy ending, and that's that the guy didn't quit. He did fall apart at the Masters on Sunday, and he lost this tournament. After the tournament was finished, he was a gentleman's gentleman. He stood before the cameras and took all of his medicine and took all the comments. If it had been me, I would have left. I wouldn't have done any news conferences. I would have gone flown. He's from Northern Ireland. I would have flown all the way back to Northern Ireland, been with my dad and my mom, and I would have shut the world out. But he didn't. He sat there and answered all the reporters' questions, and he learned from his mistake. The biggest mistake was panicking. He had a failure, but it didn't mean the tournament was over. It just meant that he was going to have to struggle a little bit and then keep his focus on the next shot. That's one thing about golf. You can't take back the shot that you just had. And the really good golfers can ignore the last one and make the best of the next one. Rory did this, actually, in the, in the next big tournament that he played in. In fact, I think it might have been the next tournament that he played in. Next big one, anyway, United States Open, and won the United States Open, leading from start to finish by a record margin. It was the feel-good story of athletics for the whole year. Because here's a kid, young kid, really young kid to be on that kind of stage, that had the most colossal failure in front of everybody. Everybody knew that Rory McIlroy had had the most incredible collapse, at least one of the two most incredible collapses, in modern history at one of the majors. He had an incredible collapse, but he came back, he learned his lesson, and he came back to the U.S. Open, and he won in an incredible fashion. Now, here's the point. We're all going to hit the occasional triple bogey. It's going to happen to us all. We're all going to hit a tee shot that's so far out of bounds we can barely find it. Now, we have a choice when that happens. Do we crawl up into a fetal position and quit? Or do we shake it off and move on? I am quite sure that if Rory McIlroy is human, and the way he plays golf, you wonder sometimes, is so phenomenal. <laughs> but he is human. And I'm quite sure that Rory McIlroy still has nightmares about that. I know I certainly would. I'm sure he still thinks about that failure. Nobody's going to ever let him forget it. If he wins 20 majors... 
they're still going to remind him of that time at the master's. That's not something one easily forgets. But he moved on and he was successful. And I'm sure he's going to be successful into the future. In the same way, we may very well remember our failures long after they've been passed. Long after we've been forgiven for whatever it was, perhaps it would, if it was a sinful failure. We're going to remember that a long time after we've been forgiven. But we need not let the memory of that failure paralyze us. We need to let it motivate us to do better in the future. You can't undo the past. But you sure can draw lessons from the past that will help in future endeavors. Douglas MacArthur said, age wrinkles the body, quitting wrinkles the soul. There is no place for quitting in the Christian life. Yes, we're all going to fail. But just because we fail, it doesn't mean that it's over. So that's the first application. When we fail, it's not over. It's not over until God says it's over. The second application that we should make from this passage tonight, and I give you the application ahead of time, is that when others fail, it's not over for them either. We might consider cutting other people some slack from time to time. Far too often, we would like to see grace directed toward ourselves, but refuse to extend it to others. We may recognize that when we fail, it's not over, but when they fail, it's over for them. Far too often, far too many of us seem to take great joy in reminding other people of their failures. That must surely grieve the Holy Spirit. I know it hacks me off just when I see it, but it grieves the Holy Spirit when somebody continually reminds another person of something that happened a long time ago. And I want you to watch, this can be deadly in a marriage. If a husband or a wife is consistently bringing up something that happened 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago, every time a fight comes up, you know what I mean. Everything's going fine. You get into an argument, and all of a sudden, bammo. Well, I remember when you did that. That is not healthy. It's bad for a marriage. It's bad for any relationship. Who are we to do that anyway? God says, I forgive. But then we say, okay. Maybe God's forgiven you, but I'm going to remind you of that sin every chance I get. Once again, I'm not implying that there are no consequences to sin. Of course there are. But I am saying that we need to stand ready to show the same grace to others that we expect to receive ourselves. It is not a mark of maturity to want grace from God, but to fail to extend it to others. And I think it is most unlovely to remind a brother or sister in Christ of their failure while wanting everybody else to forget our own. We all tend to have really good memories when it comes to the failures of others. That's not a good thing. Those are the two applications that I would suggest before we ever get started with our passage tonight. And it's with that overlay that I'd like for us to consider passages of 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. The first hint that David is about to enter a rough patch in his life 
was actually a comment that he made at the beginning of chapter 20 in verse 3. He made a comment to Jonathan that he was but a step, or there was but a step between himself and death. That statement wasn't sinful in and of itself, but there at least is a whisper here that David is about to begin to feel sorry for himself. After all, he's asking, what did he do that was so wrong? Who did he hurt? He had to be thinking, I've been serving Yahweh, I've been serving the Lord God of Israel, and I've been serving the king. What did I do to deserve this? That looks like what is what is starting to creep into his soul. Unfortunately, in the next two chapters, what was a whisper in chapter 20 becomes audible in chapters 20 and 21. Read along with me, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king commissioned me with a matter, and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, and with which I have commissioned you, and have directed the, the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us. There's more than one person with him. Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more then today would their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order, that, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Remember that name, Doeg the Edomite, one of the lowest of the low human beings that has ever lived. But more on him in just a minute. The location of Nov is uncertain. It's hotly debated, but it's probably about a mile and a half northeast of Jerusalem, which would make it about two and a half miles from where David started off in Gibeah, where Saul resided. So he hadn't gone far. Two and a half miles for somebody like David is a distance that can probably be covered in about 30 minutes for someone young and healthy like he is, especially someone to, who's in good shape and is on the run, somebody who wants to put some distance between himself and the king rather quickly. So he's not that far from Saul when this episode happens. As you already know, you should know from last week's study compared to this one, there is no question that David lies to Ahimelech. And there's no question, as we'll see as tonight's lesson ends, that David's visit, his choice to visit Nov and have the priest help him, will eventuate in the deaths of all the priests at Nov, except for one. There is a debate as to exactly what David is doing here. He certainly lies, but why is he lying? It looks to me like David has lied to give Ahimelech and the other priests plausible deniability should Saul find out about his visit to Nob? In other words, when Ahimelech is brought before Saul and accused of helping David, who's on the run, Ahimelech could say, help David, what are you talking about? 
he told me that he was on a mission for you. I didn't realize I was helping him to escape from you. That, that was, we would have never done something like that. That's quite possibly the case. But whether it's the case or not, it backfires big time. Because when Ahimelech does come to Saul, Saul doesn't believe Ahimelech and orders his death. One question does remain, and that is, why did Ahimelech give David bread that was set apart from the priest? Jesus gives us the answer to that question, I believe, in the Synoptic Gospels, when this passage comes up. He says there, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record the episode, that human need, and I summarize Jesus' answer, human need takes priority over ceremonial law. That's why Ahimelech was right to give it to David. Better give the consecrated bread to David than let him starve. Human need takes priority over ceremonial law. There's no debate about that, because Jesus came right out and said that one. In those New Testament passages, Jesus is not commenting so much on David's behavior in chapters 21 and 22, so much as he's making a point that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Jews in Jesus' day had completely misunderstood the Sabbath. Jesus is using this as an example. Don't you remember when Ahimelech the priest gave David bread so that he wouldn't starve? Human need was more important than ceremonial law. Immediately following his departure from Nov, David travels to the last place that Saul would have ever thought to look for him. This was smart from a human perspective, but this is certainly sinful in that it's demonstrating that David is now relying upon his own ingenuity, his own intelligence, his own cunning to get away from Saul. The last place that Saul would have ever looked for David would have been Gath, Goliath's hometown. Achish, who's the king of Gath, is just as surprised as anyone to see David. And with Goliath's sword strapped to his side, no less. When he comes into town, they're all asking themselves, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy that they used to sing songs about? Saul killed his thousands, David killed his ten thousands? We know that that's more than likely hyperbole. This is just a song they were singing. There weren't 10,000 in Gath to kill. It was a much smaller place than that. But this is the guy that they sing songs about. He's got Goliath's sword. This is Goliath's hometown. What's David thinking? Well, on a human level, maybe it's smart, and he thinks, well, listen, Saul doesn't want me anymore. I'm going to come over to your side. But immediately he sees that's not going to work out. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 21, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Or would be king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And verse 12, And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. That's why we know he's sinning, he's sinning here. He has lost his confidence in Yahweh, that confidence that caused him to go out and fight the, Goliath, the giant Goliath in the first place, and now he's come to this town and all these people are talking, and he's failed. This is David's tee shot on number 10. He's way out of bounds. Now what's he going to do? Well, he digs himself a little bit of a deeper hole. He, like Rory, <laughs> I think, tried to go for the green and did a second bad shot. Look at verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands, and scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down into his beard. 
Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you should have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Answer is no. People back then, as they sometimes do today, have an unnatural fear of insanity. People just don't like to be around people that have mental, emotional issues sometimes. And it was that way in, in the past in Spain. Agish wants no part of this. He wants no part of David. Get him away from me. In that sense, David's smart by feigning madness. But we also know that he's failing here because he's not trusting God. He shouldn't have gone there in the first place. And David leaves. But it is inescapable, as chapter 21 finishes, it's inescapable that David has crossed the line. He's attempting to solve his problems through human ingenuity and cleverness and is not trusting God. He learns his lesson, though. He might have hit, to use my analogy we're using tonight, he might have hit the tee shot out of bounds and the second shot was pretty poor too. But he learns his lesson and he's going to still win the tournament. Actually, he writes Psalm 34 shortly after these events. And Psalm 34 demonstrates to us that David has, in fact, learned his lesson. Turn there with me now if you have your Bible open to Psalm 34. And let's just get the flavor. We won't study Psalm 34 tonight, but let's get the flavor of what David's attitude is after he has failed. We can't deny that he's failed, but how does he respond to the failure? Psalm 34 is a psalm that is written in response to failure. Sometimes we put these biblical characters on such a pedestal, forgetting that the Bible doesn't gloss over their failures. And we think that all the Psalms were written when everything was good. No, Psalm 34 is written right after a colossal failure. And it's after that colossal failure, when we know David has recovered, that he says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Remember, this was written in response to failure, to his being afraid of Achish. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who feared him. He's getting the point. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David's learned his lesson. He's going to have more failures. But he didn't quit after the failure. This is beautiful. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is one of David's responsibilities as the leader in Israel. Yes, he failed, but can other people learn from his failure? The answer is yes. He's going to do the same thing in Psalm 51, by the way, after he has the great failure with Bathsheba. He's going to teach others of the greatness of God. 
Verse 12, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? That's all of us. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I think he's probably talking about Saul in verse 16. Verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Then in verse 20, which is a verse that, uh, that John ascribes to Jesus, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David learned his lesson. I think the lesson is summarized in that one phrase, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Instead of running off and trying to solve this problem with his own ingenuity, apart from God, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David is saying he should have known better. He should have trusted the Lord to rescue him and not his own ingenuity. Then in chapter 22, David escapes to this place. In chapter 22, the, the text begins, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went there down to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered there to him, and he became captain over them, now, there were about 400 men with him. These two verses encompass a period of time that's longer than just a few days. We don't know exactly how long. David's on the run for about 10 years. So these verses encompass at least months. The slide that you see on the board is the location of Abdullam. I know some of you can't see it too well in the back. It's not just a cave. The cave would have been right in the middle. 400 men couldn't have fit in that cave. Abdullam is a region. In fact, the way that it's put in Hebrew Bible, it's probably could be understood as the fortress or the stronghold of Adullam. Now, Adullam is actually fairly close to this place, which is the Valley of Elah. Another view would look something like this. The Valley of Elah is where David fought Goliath. He flees and stays there for some time, at least long enough to gather together with him not only his family, but 400 men. And a lot of these men are going to be with David for most of the rest of his life. The reason I brought the other, the, the other two slides up here for you is this looks pretty dry to me. But we also know that it's real close to water. In ancient Israel, as in anywhere in the ancient and Near East, you couldn't survive without water. There had to be a spring or a river or freshwater lake somewhere where you could get water from. And it's very close to these locations. This is the valley of Elam. Then in verse 3, And David went there and went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Why in the world would David go to Moab to drop his parents off? Where was Ruth from? Exactly. His great-grandmother was from Moab. He's got family. He's got relatives that are back there. Verse 4, then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. This might be the stronghold that verse 4 is referring to 
Ron Allen, the Hebrew professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, believes that the stronghold that is referred to here may very well be Masada. This is where the Jews made their last stand almost a thousand years later. This is possibly the stronghold that David stays at uh, for a while. We can't be certain about that, but it's in the same area, and it's, it's, it's probable. In verse 5, And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. In verse 6, Then Saul heard that David and the men that who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah. In verses 6 through 10, we find even more about the sorry state of Saul's character. As soon as he finds out where David is, he's got all of his military staff with him. And instead of trying to encourage them and exhort them, he immediately goes after them. He immediately accuses them of trying to hide David. Is David going to make you a captain or a general or colonel someday? No, he's not going to do that. I did that for you. Is he going to give you vineyards? No, he's not going to do that. I did that for you. In effect, he's alienating himself even more from his most trusted men. Then in verse 9, I told you we'd get back to this rascal Doeg, the Edomite. Verses 9 and 10. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Noah, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Okay, Doeg, you only told part of the story. And the part of the story that you told was so slanted that Saul's never going to get the real idea what happened. What Doeg the Edomite is doing here is he's doing everything he can to ingratiate himself to Saul while at the same time he's throwing Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob under the bus. He's not a very good guy. In fact, he might be one of the most despicable individuals that has ever lived. And that's saying a lot. Had he had the opportunities that Adolf Hitler had, he probably would have done the same thing. That's what I'm saying. This guy is bad. In an effort to gain Saul's approval, he misrepresents what happened with Ahimelech at Nob. He doesn't tell Saul what David had said, that, that David's on a mission for him, that David actually had deceived Ahimelech. He played to Saul's paranoia to advance himself. This doesn't end well for the priests. Verse 11, Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, and the priests who were in Nov, all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Ahimelech may very well have been nervous, but he, he couldn't have thought that Saul would fix to kill him. He's the priest. These are the religious leaders of Israel. That wouldn't happen, would it? Verse 13, Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your house, over your garden, is honored in your house? Ahimelech's just saying, I'm not getting this. What are you talking about, David being a threat to you? 
I'm sure there's more recorded than what's just said there. I'm sure he's saying, listen, I, I thought I was helping him because of you. What are you talking about? In verse 15, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Verse 16, but the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. What? Saul's insanity is, is getting worse by the day. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because he knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. That's not true. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. They're not insane. They disobey the order. We're not going to do that. We can't kill him. You know who he is? We're not going to kill the priest, the high priest. Well, then Doeg, bad old Doeg. Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. You don't have to ask him twice. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen upright. One at a time. 85 died. He goes even beyond that in verse 19. And he struck Nob, the city of the priest. Remember, it's only about 30 minutes away. And he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women and children and infants. Also oxen, donkeys, and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. You see why I said a minute ago, had he been in the same position, Adolf Hitler, I have no doubt he would have done the same thing. Not only does he kill all 85, he does something Saul didn't even ask him to do. He goes and kills everybody in that village. Men, women, children, and all the animals. He's a bad guy. The slaughter was totally unjustified, but it was also totally unnecessary. It was the result of two men. One who was insane and evil, and the other ambitious and evil, living out their evil. The chapter closes with David taking responsibility for what happened. What one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. If you've read ahead, you know that Abiathar is going to be with David pretty much for the rest of his life. And Abiathar told David, that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he surely would tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. You see a striking difference between Saul and David. Saul's absolutely insane. David owns up to it. He takes responsibility for it. Stay with me, he tells Abiathar. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. God preserved one of the descendants of Eli, even though the other 85 priests died. This man fled to David, so I hope you see a significant shift in what's going on in Israel at the time. The priesthood has now left, like the Holy Spirit has left Saul, the priesthood has now left Saul, and the priesthood will permanently reside with David. I think in one of the greatest gestures of his life, David fully acknowledges 
that his visit to Ahimelech was responsible for the slaughter of the priests. David feels absolutely terrible about this. And he recorded his thoughts in Psalm 52, which is going to be our study next week. But as bad as this was, knowing that his actions had caused the death of 85 men of God, David doesn't quit. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, all the way back to Eli, these men are all descendants of Eli, because of Eli's behavior and his son's behavior, Eli had already been told that there would be a day when his line would be cut off. And this is how it's going to be. Later, Abiathar is going to be cut off too. Later, way later. But in an act of incredible nobility, David owned up to it. What a great burden that must have been. You talk about keeping someone up at night. This isn't losing the masters on the back nine on Sunday. This is your actions causing the deaths of 85 people. I've talked to people. I have friends that because of something that they've done, someone else had died. Total accident, complete accident. But nevertheless, years later, they still have a lot of trouble with it. This is 85 people that David is blaming himself for their death, but he doesn't quit. He could have. I think we all might have excused him for quitting if he wanted to. That's it. That's it for me. I'm going to climb up to the top of the sod and jump off the other side. That's it for me. I can't go on living like this. But David doesn't do it. He doesn't quit. He's still quite alive. And God still has a plan and he still has a purpose for his life. His failure did not mean that his spiritual life was over. 